Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Faisal Syed, who is a founding partner of Square Law Group, and we're going to be talking tax and tax law. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. You and I have been friends for many years. I know you've got a, a really long history in the world of tax, accounting, and now law, and I'm looking forward to this. So I think the best place for us to start is with an introduction for yourself. Okay. My name is Fassel Said. My friends call me Faz. I worked at the CRA for just about nine years. When I was at the CRA, I worked in underground economy. I worked in income and excise tax act audits. I worked in first nation audits. Then I went to criminal investigations and then I went to appeals during my time there. It was a very interesting place to work. I learned a lot. And I learned that, see, the reason I took the job, when I finished accounting school, I had a few offers and luckily one of them was CRA. And I went to my dad and I said, dad, I got options to get these jobs. I had a couple, three offers and happened just by happenstance, CRA was one of those offers because I applied to CRA like nine months previous because they take forever to hire. And the first one was with a large multinational accounting firm. And my dad said, listen, you're recently married. You don't want to work the hours that they're going to make you work. And you'll never see your spouse. And if you want to have children, that'll make it harder, uh, especially early in your career. I said, okay. And, he go- and the other job was from a private industry job. And I talked to a friend of mine and he's like, listen, I had to, I had to tell one of our vendors that the check was in the mail, but I never even printed the check because mm-hmm. my boss told me to do that. And I'm not that guy. And so my dad said to me, and I actually, for myself, you know, if I'm enforcing the law of the Income Tax Act or whatever law, then I'm always going to be in the right. And so I'm never going to do anything that's like wrong. And so he, he goes, you'll never have a sleepless night from working there. And it's pension and it's seven and a half hours a day and blah, blah, blah. And so for myself, I... I said, okay, I'll go to CRA. And then when I started working there, I ended up doing things that I didn't like. There were times hmm. where I did things that would, that would curdle your blood. Like I just, it, some of the things I did because of operational requirements, that was just, I don't know, wrong to me. Hmm. And there was one file where I had, I couldn't sleep for two weeks after. And, uh, and at that time I said, you know what? I got to go to law school. I have mm-hmm. to put an end to this. So then I changed the focus of my career to learn as much as I could about how the CRA worked from the inside so that I could attack them from the outside because yeah. the assessments aren't necessarily fair or reassessments anyways. Faz, it's just when I hear that, I, I hear my friend, but also I hear that this this origin story of how you got into tax law mm-hmm. and it's it's really powerful. And, and so 
what is it that we need to know about tax law and CRA? And I ask this in, in the context of in civil law, as I understand, you're innocent until proven guilty. What is the framework in which the CRA works from a, a tax enforcement standpoint? Okay, so from so in Canada, we basically have two burdens. One of them is balance of probabilities, which is in a civil context. So like CRA works in a civil context for most of it. And then there is the criminal investigations component. That is beyond a reasonable doubt, just like any other crime. Okay, but for the rest of majority of citizens, 99% of them who aren't criminal, um, they're working on a, a standard of balance of probabilities. What that means is what's more likely than not. What's well, more likely that you did this than it was that, and therefore taxes is X plus 10 instead of X. Hmm. And so that's, that's the standard. It's very interesting how that works because people don't realize that that balance of probabilities can work against them. And we can talk about that later if we talk about getting into courts and what that looks like. But, but in the most basic sense is the system is set up for tax where the burden's on you. Yes. It's a self-reporting system. And as a result, you should be able to prove what you reported. And if you can't prove what you reported, then what's going on? So is it fair to say you're, you're effectively guilty till proven innocent? Yeah, I would argue that that's the way to look at it. Yeah. Wow. Now, for our listeners, and we primarily speak to CEOs, CFOs, and, and investor relations professionals, but that, that also includes small business owners, small business professionals. From your experience working with small business owners, what are some of the things they need to keep in mind when dealing with the CRA? Okay. So before dealing with the CRA, before we get to that part, I'd like to give a few tips on what people can do to avoid having headaches with the CRA. That'd be nice. Okay. So the first, the first tip I'd give is make sure your personal life and your business life are separate. What does that mean? So if you have a corporation, then and you're taking money out of that corporation, you want to make sure you write yourself a check or do an e-transfer. You're not going to go with a debit card to the bank machine because if you do, now you've commingled your life and your business, which makes your personal life up for audit. And you don't want to do that because it is the worst kind of review that you'll feel in your life in terms Mm. of you're very naked. They'll see your credit card bills. They'll see what you spend your money on, how you spend your money, you know, this, that, the other thing. So, you kind of want to keep those separate. When I was an auditor, I remember one of the taxpayers were taking out uh, money from a debit card, which opened up his personal life. And then I started looking deeper into it because that's what my job was. And I'm like, oh, wow, he courted his spouse with this. And there's the, the purchase price for the wedding ring was in there and this mm. and that. And that actually, he claimed it from a corporate level, though he paid it to his personal, which is very, very interesting. But of course... His audit didn't go well for him. And of so, course. And so, yeah. So, first tip, not commingling. That's right. Certainly. Okay. What are the next tips that you can have? That you have? Get a good accountant. Attend a seminar on what to do to keep your business affairs uh, clean and straight. If you earn more than $30,000 in revenue, you should register for GST. One of the biggest things that people don't do is uh, keep good records. They are busy being an entrepreneur. And as a result... They'll go and have a business meeting and put it through on their credit card, not keep the receipt, not keep anything, not write on the back of the receipt who they were meeting with or why they were meeting. And as a result, that expense likely will be denied. And if they just use their visa statement, which many people do, the CRA won't 
honor that. They'll say, nope, sorry. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't meet documentary requirements for uh, the, the Excise Tax Act. And I don't know if you spent it for business. And as a result, prove it that it was for business. Good luck without a receipt. Hmm. It's when I think about good bookkeeping, good accounting, and having somebody there, two things come to mind. I've always had a thought that you should have somebody who's got a designation mm-hmm. that they're holding their hat on, they're hanging their hat on. Because if they lose that de- designation, they're losing the profession. Mm-hmm. And there's so many accountants and bookkeepers and tax professionals out there mm-hmm. who have none of that, but have no problem to go or that there's no issue for them to go and represent that they are, it seems in Canada. Yeah. And the second is, I think that, you know, good bookkeeping and, and so on is something that is, it's an investment in the company because you're going to save so much time in the future. So that's one of the things that people don't realize. If you have clean books and records and CRA does happen to audit you, your life is quick and easy. Like they'll ask you for certain invoices, you'll provide them, boom, you're done. The accounting system should be robust enough that it's not like I can pick out any expense in this category of expenses and be able to get that receipt from you like that. And yeah. if I don't, then why not? Yeah. Um, so again, it is a self-reporting system, right? So everything that you use to build your records, you should have available for the CRA when they come. And it's interesting. The CRA has gotten much larger. The last year I worked there full-time was 2011. And I, I did some part-time in 2012. I was in law school by that time. And, and at that time, I think the CRA was between 29 and 31,000 employees. So it's, it's very large. Now it's 56. And the last I heard, they're hiring another 6,000 people. Wow. Um, to put it into a really interesting perspective, if we look at the IRS of the United States, we see that the IRS manages the taxes of 360-some-odd million people. And they have a staff of 75,000. Oh, my God. So, CRA is almost as big as the IRS with one-tenth of the population. Wow. And in order to prove their worth, they're going to have to audit. And they're going to have to get reassessments. Um, and so, that's, that's part of the problem. Because the system requires them to get reassessments. And so, one of the broken things about the way the CRA works is that if audit reassesses someone, then um, it goes to appeals and get overturned. Audit still gets the data for their performance metrics. So, hmm. so if they want to prove their worth, they get $10 billion of reassessments. It doesn't matter that only $1 billion stuck. Hmm. And so that's how government agencies get bigger and bigger, right? Interesting. And so, and the unfairness of it all gets more and more great to the average citizen. While I was there, the government changed and we used to call them audit clients. Like when I first started there, they were audit clients. Mm-hmm. We, got a, we got a notification that we are no longer to call them audit clients. We're to call them taxpayers. It's a significant psychological shift, right? It's mm-hmm. now with client, I'm working with my client. But if you're a taxpayer, that puts me on one side of a fence and you on the other. Yeah. And that's a big shift. You owe. That's right. You're someone who's a taxpayer. And as a result, what are you up to? That's it's wild. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to talk about navigating tax problems, but I also want to talk about a big thing that I think is an issue a lot of entrepreneurs are facing, that's succession planning. Yes. And so if... 
I was an entrepreneur and I built my company up for the last, you know, 20 years mm-hmm. and looking to sell it a million bucks, five, 10, 50, hundred million bucks, whatever the number is. Right. Certainly, I think keeping it on the smaller scale because that's where you don't have the, the resources to be investing in uh, professionals to guide you. Right. So, what should you be doing to prepare for, for succession planning? And then maybe we can discuss how you go through a sale from a tax standpoint. Okay. So, I think from a, so my undergrad's in entrepreneurship. And so, what I would say is a person who's running a small business or even a medium sized business, if they want to maximize their value, they should get someone in to help them identify areas where they could be revenue drivers, where there's not revenue drivers. One of the things that, that people don't realize is you can really increase the value of your company over a very short span by increasing the revenues because you just didn't pick up on that. And someone who's an outside mind is often able to say, wait a minute, you can capture income here, you can capture income there. So that's one thing I'd say. Another thing is getting the wrinkles out. A lot of companies still have a lot of wrinkles, especially smaller companies, because you know it's a few people operating the whole company or one person taking on all these roles and because that stuff falls through the cracks. But if you're looking for an exit, sometimes it's worth it to hire in people that can enhance the value through filling those gaps. So you always look professional. So you always get those five-star Google reviews or whatever it is that the metric. In terms of secession planning, if your plan is to exit and you're what's called a CCPC, which is a Canadian controlled private corporation, you probably want to make sure that you're purified so there's a tax, like you can plan for this tax to minimize your tax. Everyone has access to something called a lifetime capital gains exemption in Canada. So in order to access that, you need to have a small business corporation that's also a CCPC that will afford you to sell that company. Let's say you, you paid a dollar for your shares. Okay? You have 100 shares at a penny each, it costs you a buck to buy the company. Mm-hmm. Well, that company is now worth a million dollars. Well... If you're purified so that you meet the criteria of the CRA under the act and you've done it properly, then when you sell $914,000 of that gain will be not taxable in the way that normal tax would occur. So the small business deduction, as I understand that is now it's a million dollars. It's up to a million bucks or what's uh, the... It's 914, I think, or okay, something, something close to that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so purified, it almost sounds like some kind of religious term. It almost uh, is. Uh, what is a purified CCP, Canadian Controlled Private Corporation? Yeah, uh, a purified company would be a company that for, for this purpose and only for the purpose of using LCGE, a lifetime capital gains exemption, is a company that has 90% at the time of sale, 90% of its assets are used primarily in active business. So you can't be sitting on a wad of cash because you didn't want to take it out hmm. uh, because people... People generally are afraid of taking money out of their company because they pay personal tax on it. But there are ways that we can manage that out. So we, we can make it so you don't trigger personal tax and we rip that money out and we put it into another company. We can butterfly strategically, uh, making sure that we follow the law. That's one of the maneuvers that we can do. We can, if you want to add your children in, let's say your, your exit plan is to have children take over your business. Well, you can't just give them the business hmm. because you've conferred a benefit on them. That company is worth a million bucks. Now, you can't take a million bucks and just hand it to your kid unless it's tax-paid money. Non-tax-paid money, i.e. The, the money that's sitting in shares, the value of the company, can't be transferred to your child 
without incurring a disposition that occurs. Mm -hmm. So, but we can do something called a freeze and we'll freeze your value to a certain amount, like whatever the value of the company is. That means the company has no value. And then we issue new shares and those new shares will be, you know, at a nominal cost. So your child can afford to buy the shares. They will have all the growth in their shares and your shares are now frozen at a predetermined value. So that way you you don't, you have been able to give your child the business. Now they owe you X dollars for these preferred shares, but they can pay it over many years and that's okay. And that's a nice way to transfer a business. So what I'm hearing then is, is, is let's say you're, the value of your shares is a million dollars and you freeze it there. You've got a 999,900 so on capital gain effectively, mm-hmm. but you freeze the value there. And then is it, does that in turn for your, your, your children who are buying the company, make it a form of a debt in which they're paying back? Eventually they'll have to pay it back, but there's other ways to manage that debt. You'll have to pay tax on that disposition either way. Yeah. But often you can get the children to buy a life insurance policy for way less than the cost of that million bucks that will pay on your death uh, to pay out that amount and the yes. tax on that amount. So, you know, these points you're discussing make me think that this is the kind of stuff that just doesn't happen overnight. You've got, you got to think through this well in advance. What is well in advance? Minimum, minimum of two years. Before you talk, before your sale, you need to, to purify properly and to have your company be eligible for the LCGE, you need to be thinking for 24 months previous, you have to be in the condition where you meet the criteria. Okay. So if you're not meeting the criteria and you decide, you call me and you say, hey, can you make this work? I'll be like, uh, you have 18 months left till sale. This is going to be hard. Yes. So you kind of want to call two years early, which is tough. Because, yeah, because sometimes people don't realize they don't want to do it anymore until it's, they don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. It's another thing. I just did a, an interview with a, a gentleman who's a business broker and they sell companies all around the world. And one thing he said is like, when iron's hot, you got to act. Yeah. If you've got a buyer there and you're waiting to do some kind of maneuver, you know, let's postpone close for six weeks. Boom. Something changes. Deal's done. And he actually had an example of that. So. Yeah. It sounds like this is something that you have to really take into consideration. Early and on. even if you don't know you're leaving, there's no harm in being in a pure state. There's no harm in that. And the, I have clients who consistently say, they never know when they're going to be done. And as a result, they always keep their company in a situation that they're going to save on a million dollars of gain or okay. just under a million. And you can do that. It's not cost prohibitive. It's actually very, it's a very reasonable cost to do these maneuvers. One of the things that, that I'll note is my wealthiest clients they plan well in advance. Like I have a clients who are building malls and, and they will uh, come to me five years in advance of this transaction to make sure that all their I's are dotted and all their T's are crossed. Because hmm. one of the, the, the things that I hated about working at CRA is there's a lot of technicalities. And I catch people on technicalities, even though you know their spirit and their intent was to do X, but because they missed one thing by a day, the hammer hmm. comes out. And so... Getting ahead of it is one of the most important things a person can do. What, what are some of those, techni- as a small business owner, what are some of those technicalities we should be keeping in mind? Like um, where, do, where do some of your clients, most of your clients get caught offside? Many of them do, but some of them, so my business primarily deals with both tax planning and tax defense. Now, tax defense is when the CRA comes and audits you. I'm the fixer for that. Tax planning is different 
but I do a bunch of, I would say my work is pretty evenly split between the two functions. Some months it's more defense, some months it's more planning, but, but the planning side is where there's the most value generally, you know, that's where I save clients big, big money. Now on the defense side, it's because they have a reassessment for like, I have one right now on my desk where the reassessment was $1.6 million on a small company. CRA messed it up. It's completely done wrong, but uh, they hired me. And now I think their bill right now, we're still in negotiations is around 36 or 38,000. Wow. So big change. No kidding. For anyone even receiving a letter from the CRA, it can start to increase blood pressure. For sure. Take me through the process if I was in a position where I receive a, a letter saying I owe $1.6 million. Well, what is that process? How do I start to engage with you or other tax advisors to navigate that? So that will generally occur if you've been audited. So you'll know it's coming generally. Like you'll see the, you'll see them unfold the process and, and you may not agree with it and that's okay. But as the process unfolds, one of the things people need to think about is, should I have a representative talking on my behalf or should I be talking on my behalf? As a CRA staff member, uh, whether it be in criminal investigations or in regular audit, we were trained to ask specific questions and try to kind of like pick along the way so that we would get data from directly from the taxpayer that would harm the taxpayer hmm. um, and, and help the CRA. So... But if you're talking to a representative and the CRA is only talking to a representative. And like the rep- being your accountant as an example. Your accountant or your lawyer. And they make a mistake. Well, they can always just say it's a mistake because it didn't come out of their mouths. It didn't, didn't come out of the tax. Oh, no, he was mistaken. So that's something to remember. That's hmm. one of the values of having someone in the, as your front man, as it were. Because right. they make sure they take the heat. And you get more time to ponder the answer of a question because they're going to be asking you questions that that you would just answer naturally and not have any idea that it's going to impact your tax situation. Yes. And so while I'm not saying you should lie because you shouldn't, um, you should choose your words very carefully. And that's important. No kidding. Okay. When going through these these like a tax process and audit, mm-hmm. what are the time frames for this and yeah, and how might like how can you work with your tax advisor best? Because you guys don't come cheap. And so there's you know, there's a balance there. You know what's interesting is I'm I believe at the current time, I am the most cost effective tax lawyer in Western Canada. And it the reason that is is because I have guilt because of what I did at the CRA. So I want to make tax law accessible to Joe average. I don't charge what most tax lawyers are charging. I charge in and around the zone of what a family lawyer charges because I think it's the right thing to do. Hmm. And people go into the CRA and they don't have any idea what's coming. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, you missed this thing. Oh, and you didn't do that. And bam, the hammer comes out and their lives are destroyed. Yeah. The tough part is, is the CRA can literally destroy your lives. It's, it's funny when I left there in 2011, I, either it was 2010 or 2011, they said, look to your left. We went to a union meeting because they were doing collective bargaining or something like that. And they said, look to your left, look to your right. In 10 years, two of the three will be gone through attrition because CRA is quite old So mm. at that time. So plenty of people were walking out the door retiring. 
Now, what happened in those 10 years? Well, if we use 2011 as a benchmark, maybe it was 2012, but let's say 2012 was a benchmark. Now, 2012 to 2020, everything's fine. The last two years became COVID. Now, what happens to training and development and intellectual capital that's walking out the door retiring? Hmm. And so the CRA arguably lost millions and millions of dollars of intellectual capital just walked out the door retired. Mm -hmm. And good for those people. They served their country uh, for all those years. But the knowledge transfer wasn't there. So now, especially as of late, the reassessments that we're seeing in our office are (sighs) troublesome, to say the least, where they're doing things that aren't in accordance with the law. Um, and the taxpayer, my clients have to bear the expense of fighting the CRA when they broke the law themselves Hmm. and my taxpayer didn't, my client didn't. Hmm. So it's very weird. It's a weird time in in my world. I think it's, this sounds so terrible, but the truth is it's it's a good time to be me. It's a bad time to be a citizen. (laughs) Wow. Let's, let's shift gears because I know that there's some some interesting things you did and, and our conversation's really been focused on the CRA right now, but like, take me back to your nine years there. You, you didn't just work in audit as a high level umbrella. You worked in multiple different divisions mm-hmm. and you've told me some really interesting stories over the years. And I, and I, I love if you could share some of those. Okay. I, there's one story, the story, I'll tell you the story that made me decide to become a lawyer. I went to go audit this guy. This poor guy got audited because he, he lived in a postal code that he couldn't afford to live in. And back then, screening for audits was much different. There was a team of people that would screen. There was a the, what we used to affectionately call the rat line. The people would call in and say, oh, this guy's not reporting this or that. And then we might look at it, we might not. But this guy was screened in because he lived in a duplex that butted up against estate homes. So his was the last house in that postal code. And clearly, he, he couldn't afford to be there if he was in an estate home. But he wasn't. Now, I go to his house, and this was early in my career. Uh, I go to his house, sit at his kitchen table. Uh, By the end of my career, I didn't sit at kitchen tables. And I start chatting with him. I have his demographic data. He's 52. His wife is 53. We're just chatting over coffee. And someone comes down the stairs, and uh, it's a female. She's wearing a nightgown, and her hair is, like, white. And he says, oh, this is my wife, such and such. And I go, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And she seems really tired. And so I... I see. After she leaves, I, I ask the, uh, the client, the taxpayer, I say, was that your wife? Is my demographic data correct? It says here that she's 53, blah, blah, blah. She looks really, and he goes, oh, no, that's all right. I go, is she okay? She seems really tired. Well, she's got brain cancer. And I go, really? What's the prognosis? Well, she'll be dead in three to six months. And I said, wow. And I think to myself, I don't need to do, I look in the file. And I go, no, this file isn't statute barred. The law doesn't bar us from auditing this a year from now or a year and a half from now. So why am I here while hmm. this guy's wife is dying? This hmm. is wrong. I get up. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to see you in a year or seven months. Let me talk to my boss. We'll get this handled. See you. Take it home, back to the office. Take it home. And um, I'm going to go to my boss and go, listen, this person's wife is dying of cancer. I can get a letter from their their doctor to say that the life expectancy, what it is. I think we should put this away and come back after the fact. And he says, no, we need it for this year's budget. Go do it. And I was like, uh, and I felt really ugly doing that. And this was the file where I couldn't sleep for a few weeks. 
So then what happened was I, I call him back and I said, listen, my boss isn't letting me do this. I actually went to my boss's boss and I said, listen, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and she's like, no, we need it for budget. And I'm, okay, fine. Hmm. So I, I call him up and I said, listen, I'd rather not interact with your life. Can I work with your accountant? Now, this poor guy went to a big chain. It's very multinational chain of tax preparation people that aren't accountants. Um, and I won't say the name because there's no value in that. But what I, I started interacting with this, this quote unquote accountant. And, and then every time I requested invoices to see if they were there, they weren't. And so as that happens, risk increases. Like, because I wasn't able to prove this. So therefore, oh, what else can't I prove? I better look more. As I went through that, I couldn't prove 90% of his expenses because there was no invoices to go with. More than 90% actually. But I do have his bank statements that show, because he paid with debit, that he paid, that he was in construction. He paid Home Depot for the $28.79 that's on his things. But I don't have a slip. And, And so the rule at CRA is generally no ticket, no ride. If you don't have that invoice, too bad. Now I said, now let's not forget this man's wife is dying of brain cancer and he's watching it. And I go to my boss, I said, listen, I'm an accountant. I can apply professional judgment. Let's make this so that if we don't want to give him, because he doesn't have the invoices, then at least let's give him industry standard. Because what your, mm. what my boss's position was, because I went to him and I said, listen, this is wrong. He's spent this money. He clearly does not live the way, you know, if I reassess the way he would be living. And, and they said, nope, that's appeals' problem. Deny the expenses. And, and back then, we were assessing gross negligence penalties based on the quantum of the reassessment. Hmm. So we call for a final meeting. I've warned the quote-unquote accountant. And I said, listen, you know, this bill's heavy, and I told him the amounts. And so we sit down, and the client said, taxpayer's there. And he uh, goes, so what's the damage? And I, I go, listen, you know, we had some hiccups, but it was 370 something thousand dollars. But if you can find those, now it was interesting because he was pointing at his tax preparer that I gave him the invoices. The tax preparer is pointing back at him saying, oh, but we gave them back to you. And so somewhere these records have gone missing. Because of that, he gets this bill, 379,000 plus gross negligence penalties. He's, you know, up into the, because plus penalties and interest, he's up to the six fifty seven hundred thousand dollars range. Jesus. So he literally falls off his chair. And I don't know if you recall, when I was a kid, I remember being really sad and crying and sobbing. And I remember my, my son got sad about something and he sobbed like that, you know, that kind of crying. He fell on the floor and started doing that because his wife is dying and I just destroyed him and he feels powerless and that really messed with me. And that was the day I decided I can't do this. This guy should have gotten expenses, but my boss said, no, this guy didn't have, didn't take $379,000 out of his company and use it for anything. He just got screwed. Jesus. And so it was very, very difficult for me. And that's a, that's a story I don't share widely because it, it still bothers me to this day. So, Well, it's shared wide now, man. I guess. Um, 
It's powerful. And, and just, you know, for our listeners, we're actually sitting in studio recording this right now. And I'm looking over to, to Artie and Dexter and I can see the, the facial expressions in mine as well, man. I mean, geez, it's no longer a client. You're a taxpayer. Yeah. Wow. That's it. Well, okay. Where can we go from here? How can we bring this back? How can we be uplifting? I think what is something to say there is one, you have to be in control of your own uh, accounting destiny. The other is that I just appreciate your approach. And, you know, you say you carry the guilt, which I think I could see. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How about talking about uh, personal tax planning, not to go deep into problems you can have, but like I hear about things like family trusts or people ask, should I incorporate things like this for small business? Right. Talk me through a couple of those. Like, what is a family trust? And is this something that's beneficial to people to have? Well, you know, what's interesting about family trusts is they were all the rage before it was 2019 or 2017, current government changed the laws around family trusts. They had benefited themselves from family trusts and they decided to pull up the ladder. Oh, I've got this. Now I'm going to pull up the ladder. You can't get this. Hmm. And so family trusts are taxed at a very high rate. It's better off unless you have a maneuver that's going to occur. You know, you're going to sell a company and you want to multiply your lifetime capital gains exemption by amongst the beneficiaries of the trust, often it may not be worth it. There are trusts that are worth it, like disability trusts and, and spousal trusts and this and that for different reasons. Uh, but family trusts can be effective, but only in the right situations. So there's plenty of lawyers and accountants who will say, no, no, we, we should put this in a trust. And I just don't do work that only benefits me. So hmm. I don't want to do things for people that won't achieve those goals. Like if, if you really believe you're going to save a pile of money because of doing this, and I, and I know in my mind it doesn't, then I will write it down and show you how it does not save you money. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's tough. But in terms of incorporation, that's... That gets, before we, before sure. talking incorporation, let me just touch on something. As I understand, I saw this, that family trust, if you had... Uh, you, yourself, your spouse, and then let's say your two, two, two children, you hit on a point there that you could multiply the lifetime capital gains exemption among those beneficiaries. You get each of those. Yeah, which yeah. is an interesting one. So, okay, I can see there that there's, there's benefit. a benefit to a that. A huge benefit. If you yeah. have four members of your family, it's four times the 914,000 tax-free. Everyone right. gets, you know, possibly gets hit with, if they're not working in a separate job or something like that, they might get hit with alternative minimum tax. But even still, that's a lower amount than, I mean, with legislative changes, that might change. But for now, yeah, you can do that. So, yeah. Somewhat unrelated. What do you say to people who say the rich just get richer and they don't pay any tax? Okay. Wealthy people pay tax and they pay a lot of tax. I will say that it's a misnomer to say this is not the United States. And so, in the United States, there's many mechanisms. That, like, for example, your home in the States is tax deductible. Your interest on your mortgage for every citizen is tax deductible. Generally. 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 Okay. At least, I'm not an American tax lawyer. This is what I've been told. Yeah. So, we don't have that, right? So, there's no deduction for having a house that's way more expensive than you would probably need because you have a deduction. Hmm. Because people will buy what they can afford, not what... Because you can afford more if you're paying less tax, right? And so that's the weirdness of the United States. Now, one of the things that people don't realize, and I'm not an advocate for high taxes, let me be very clear. But when America was in its biggest boom, when they were building their highways, when they were doing, you know, the things that mm -hmm. made them great, 
they had, I think their average attack rate was between 60 and 72% or something like that. And so think about that. For every dollar you earn, you're giving a government between 60 cents and 72 cents. Can you imagine? Seriously? Right? Yes. In the US? Yes. Okay. So the historically super low rates that there we see now, right, and you wonder why the roads are crumbling and you wonder why this and that. And so, you know, I'm not an advocate for high tax rates, but I'm also not an advocate for unfair tax enforcement. And mm. that's really what I've been seeing. In my office, I get this weird mix because people only come to me for a defense perspective once they have a problem. Mm. And then I see the unfairness, right? Mm. And I remember the unfairness from when I worked there. So it really gets me worked up. Yeah. But I would much rather they charge an extra half a percent across the board than destroy all of these people that actually would make great benefit to the economy by being productive and hiring staff yeah then then being like oh i'm gonna kill you because i need those stats yeah yeah so we need to hit budget yeah that's an interesting one a good friend of mine a dear friend of mine um he's very much a you know probably more of a blue collar kind of guy has has an entrepreneurial bone in his body and we were talking tax once and and he asked me kind of point blank he's like so for everything we have in this country, how much is too much tax to pay? Mm. And I was like, because I'm, of course, you know, I want to pay as little as possible. Yep. I believe that, that I'm most capable of deploying that capital and don't want to be giving it up to somebody to, you know. Squander uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, but when he asked me that question, I was like, huh, good question. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't even have an answer to that because I, the budget of the government of Canada is like, you know, if we combine the income of everyone, not just in this room, but in this building, if that just disappeared off the map, it'd be like one one hundredth of a penny to the government of Canada in terms of their wallet. So it's a big, <laughs> it's a big like running. I don't envy the the budget makers at the government of Canada because okay. it, it's, it's a very hard job, I imagine. And deploying capital to get the social good that you want done, done is very difficult because there is inefficiencies that you find everywhere, yeah. right? So that's, what is the number? I have no idea to be absolutely yeah. honest. Coming back to incorporation, mm -hmm. uh, when is it beneficial to incorporate? Is it actually, is there a need to do that or is it better to be a sole proprietor? Honestly, if it depends on your income and it depends on what you're doing. If you're running a business that attracts risk, so, you run a restaurant and people come and go and you might, you know, have a bad employee who, you know, doesn't cook something properly and that causes real damage or it puts a pathogen into someone that causes them long-term harm. Or if you run a construction company or if you, uh, where, you know, someone can get injured or kind of anything where there's risk, mm -hmm. you want to use a corporation. And okay. the reason why is because your liability is limited there. And that's just a legal perspective. From a tax perspective, if you're earning more than you can use, like then you don't want it to be in a sole proprietorship. And the reason why is because as a sole proprietor, whatever you earn is taxed as a personal income. Now, if I do it through a corp, let's say you earn, a, you can live off of 60 grand a year and you're very comfortable at 60 grand. I'm just making up a number. Yeah. Or 100 grand for the sake of discussion. But you're earning 300 grand. 
Now, why would I take 300 and pay personal tax on that amount when I can take 100 out of my company, pay personal tax on the 100 and pay corporate level tax on the 200 and use that money to reinvest to grow my business? Because corporate tax is significantly less than personal tax. Now, at the end of the day, there's a principle called integration. So the theory goes that if I'm an employee working, if I'm a person who owns a corporation, I'm working through the corporation or getting dividends to the corporation, my tax rate should be effectively the same on the income that I get as an employee somewhere else who doesn't own the company. Hmm. So the government charges less tax on the corp, but then hits you heavy on the personal to make that gap, right? Okay. So you end up paying the same. Yeah. It's, so, but if you use that money in the corp, now you only needed a hundred out of the three. Now you got $200,000 left in your company, which you can deploy after tax. You can deploy to hire more staff, to grow your business, to do all the things you want to do. You can invest through it. There's plenty of things you can well, do. Not all the things you want to do. No, because, of course. Yeah. Of yeah. course. But, but it does open a lot more doors for you and it does give you more buying power to do things in the future that you may want to do. Hmm. One of the magical things about a corporation is you can use it as an income deferral mechanism. Right. So I don't need that $300,000 right now. I only need a hundred thousand of it, but you know, I don't know if uh, later in life I'll need that money. Well, I leave it in the corporation. I'm, I might employ it to do something. Maybe I don't, maybe I just put it in an investment account or something. Yeah. Then later in life, I can draw that money out and pay tax on it. Then when my overall tax is less because I'm, I need less because my house is paid off. My kids are grown up, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you also have this reserve that you can borrow against that people don't realize. Oh, right. Right. So you have an asset worth $5 million or $1 million or, or even $500,000. Well, geez, you need a quick loan, you go to the bank, get that. That way you don't pay the tax. And then you pay that back over time as you normally would on any other loan. Yeah. Somewhat related, but I have this philosophy that I wish and believe that every person should be their own personal corp because it can become an asset for them, but it also gives them purpose to operate and, and manage their own destiny, mm -hmm. right? Like it becomes their child. And if you screw that up, you can be in a world of hurt. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you commit to it and you, and you put yourself forward, even if you're just a, a professional consultant of sorts, it gives you a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of purpose and, and a need to be, how do you say, rigorous. Mm -hmm. And so that's here and there. Man, I've had a really good conversation here, but, and I want to ask a few questions that aren't related specifically to tax and sure. something I'm interested in is what do you listen to? What do you what kind of, uh, information do you read? Podcast do you listen to aside from the insider's guide to finance? I know you're a big fan. Of course I am. <laughs> uh, I will say that I, my life is such that, that right now, all I do is professional development. I spend anywhere between 12 and $20,000 a year in professional development. That eats up all of my brain power, I guess. After that, I just read books for joy. Hmm. Uh, so they're not, I don't read personal finance or tax planning books for fun because I think about it all day, every day. Yeah. And I want to turn off. So that's kind of, for me, that's important. I generally, when I get home, I generally don't look at the computer anymore because I looked at it all day. So that's something to be alive to. So most of my stuff is spent with, professional development. So I know that's a really hokey answer, but, and if I'm listening to a podcast, it'll be something like yours. There was one I listened to a while back done by the negotiations ninja group. That was very interesting to me. And that was just personal interest, even though 
it was, it's related to business. And so, I mean, I do watch entrepreneurial trends because that's where my, I, my heart kind of is yeah. in being an entrepreneur. But yeah. Yeah. We, we do have to give a shout out to Mark Raffin and Negotiation Ninjas uh, or his business there. He is the impetus for this podcast. Well, true. Yeah. We sat down a couple blocks from here having a beer about four years ago. And he's like, you have to start this. And I kicked oh. and screamed. And, and it's been my only regret is not starting it sooner. With that, what are your thoughts about AI, the world of tax, and the world of personal development for you right now? I honestly, I think that if I, if right now I wasn't employed and I wasn't busy earning an income, I would learn everything I could about AI because I think while it's really in its infancy now, I think it's going to become a powerful tool. I actually do believe, sadly, but maybe, maybe for the better, that AI will take away these jobs like CPA jobs. And because I'm both an accountant and a lawyer, and I'll tell you that accounting specific, not tax, but accounting is actually not super hard. And people are just afraid of it. Like, you know, if you never changed oil, it'll, it'll scare the, yeah, yeah. you know, it'll scare you to do it and you won't want to, oh, maybe I'll wreck something, but it's actually not that bad. Hmm. But I think that, that AI will start doing this work for us. And so when I have an invoice, like I go out for a business meeting and I incur costs for that, I snap a picture, I upload it to the AI, the AI will, the accounting AI will look, identify it as a meals and entertainment, say, boom. And it'll ask me the questions, who'd you eat with? John Doe. Okay. What was the purpose of the meeting? Blah, blah, blah. And then it's in there. It's already booked. I don't have to worry about the records. It's got a picture of it. So now I have a storage of records. I think that's where we're going. I think becoming an accountant now it's a more risky venture hmm. because because in 10 or 15 years i don't know if that industry exists the way we see it today just yeah. like just like when i was a child who would ever thought a social media influencer would be a thing yeah but it is right yeah. so yeah i think hmm. i think accountants are are slowly slowly but certainly going to go the way of the dodo bird yeah. Yeah. Certainly. I think the pre- the profession as it is now is not going to be the same. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's going to be slowly and slowly. I think that we have about a year right now to start getting up to speed with what AI is mm-hmm. and how to put it to work and how we engage with the different tools that are out there. Mm-hmm. And those who haven't figured it out, embraced it, will be left behind. Yeah, absolutely. I you totally know, agree with that. Like the the internet's been around what? 25 years as we kind of know it 1995 ish Mm -hmm. aol style come out with some google learn how to search you know it kicks back a search and now you just speak to an ai and it's kicking you off answers and 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 there's gonna be a lot of applications so i think that's gonna really it's gonna accelerate quick but i think we have to be on it as we wrap up faz any final thoughts and i think the question is within the context of business owners ceos and entrepreneurs Final thought, thoughts on tax and law. The, the most important things I'm going to tell you, and the worst part is when I, as a lawyer in my office, people come in with tax reassessments and they've missed their deadlines. Hmm. Tax is one of those things. The tax court is not like any other court. The provincial court, court of King's Bench, they're courts of equity. Tax court's a court of statute. What does the law say? Black and white. And if you miss your deadline, you've missed your deadline. And it's just that simple. I've argued in court with Department of Justice 
on what. So you get 90 days after reassessment to file your objection. If you miss it, you get an extra year. In that year, we actually had to go to court because we got rejected because my client came in 364 days, 365 days after the 90 days. And I'm like, and that year, so I got the work. I did the work right away. I got it in that day. Then I end up in court and I'm arguing with the Department of Justice on what constitutes a year. Hmm. And, and I appear before Justice Graham, who I have a high, high level of respect for. And uh, Justice Graham says, listen, uh, the, the lawyer for Department of Justice, very nice guy. He's like, listen, a year is 365 days. You got it in in 366 days. You're out. And I go, but it's a leap year. And that year was a leap year. And I go, a year is a year. It doesn't matter if it's a leap year or not a leap year. It's still a year. And so a year isn't 365 days in a leap year. And so hmm. we won that application. But it's interesting because the, the DOJ is CRA's law firm. Okay. Right? So they treat, they have to do what the CRA tells them to do. And just like I have to do what my clients tell me what to do. And the sad reality is, is even for Department of Justice, he knew that he was pushing like what I like to call pushing a, a metal bar up a hill with your nose. He, okay. It's a very hard task to do that, right? And so, uh, but he argued, but of course we won the day. So, wow. the one thing that I encourage everyone is don't miss your deadlines. Watch them like a hawk because the, the, the punitive action is massive. Like if you miss your timeline, you're dead. You die on the vine. So don't miss your timelines. It's one of the biggest things you can do to save yourself. In terms of what advice I can give to entrepreneurs, CEOs, et cetera, et cetera, is make sure that you're planning because it's not hard to have a consultant who is an accountant or who is a lawyer or is both that can help you make sure that you avoid the pitfalls from a business perspective, a legal perspective, and a tax perspective. Because, you know, most entrepreneurs know that their best friends are going to be in business will be their accountant and their lawyer. Mm. And I have many clients who are very happy that I'm both. And so, you know, those people in your business will make the difference between success and failure. Mm. And always marketing is very important, but but that's your world, not mine. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, but even if you have a great business, it's very robust. If the accounting is done wrong, it can kill you. Yeah. If you've made bad plans and you, you've incurred liability where you shouldn't have because you could have avoided it by contract or whatever, then your lawyer would have been your best friend and your accountant would have been your best friend for the tax issue. So there you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Faz, I'm so glad we got to do this, man. Yeah, it's, been a, it's been a really good interview. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Corey. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.